All right, good morning, Mercy Hill. It's good to be with you. Let me invite you to open your Bible and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 29. And while you're turning there, I want to share a story with you. Before our family moved to, to Memphis, we lived in Nashville for about four years. And we were in Nashville helping to start a church and... Our home in Nashville had a wood, um, we had a fireplace there, and uh, the boys really enjoyed the fireplace, Uh, it was a wood-burning fireplace, and we had, just outside the living room, we had a screened-in porch, and I can remember fondly Johannes with his little plastic wagon, we would split wood in the backyard and keep it stacked against the fence, and oftentimes Johannes would help me load wood and, and bring it in. Well, on one particular day, I had left some of my tools in the backyard. And I looked outside to see, from best I remember, it was Riley and Cole, and I know it was our next-door neighbor, Patrick. And they had found one of the hatchets that I was using, not a, not a large axe, but a small hatchet. And they were throwing it up in the air and letting it land and seeing if it would stick. And... I looked outside and I quickly ran outside and tried to gently yet also forcefully say, Guys, this is dangerous. You can't be throwing a hatchet up in the air. This cracks my skull open. And as little boys who are all under the age of 10, I mean, they're just, they're just having the time of their life. They're like, hey, we've got a hatchet. Let's see who can make it stick in the ground. Let's see who can throw it the highest. And they were just having the time of their life. I thought about that story as I read this passage of Scripture because I think that that story illustrates in many ways the way in which the world looks for life, the way in which the world looks for hope. So many people are just throwing circumstances up into the air. They're throwing one life event or one relationship after the other, just seeing what sticks Seeing what could possibly bring them hope. All the while, the truth is, and the big idea that I want us to see today is this. If you surrender to Jesus daily, you will find hope now and in eternity. Where are you looking for hope right now in your life in this time of quarantine? Where are you spending your time Where are you spending your finances? Maybe you have a little more money because you're not going out to eat as much. Or or maybe you have less money and that's really bothering you right now. Because you're short um, on money. Think about your thoughts and your passions and the margin that you have in your life. Where is your worship directed during this time of quarantine? Where are you looking for hope? I know at our house... Um, there's a lot of projects that have been going on around the house. We worked in the flower bed some. And uh, my wife Katie, she's got a raised garden that she's made with, with peppers and uh, tomatoes and cucumbers and all kinds of things. And, and I hear the next project is a chicken coop um, that is to come. And so there's, there's many, many things that we can busy ourselves with. But we've got to be reminded of the fact that there are no circumstances in our life, that there's nothing that, that is a created thing that will give us hope. I mean, even now, the snails are eating our basil. 
And we know that even though we don't have chickens yet, that there will be a day in which they'll stop laying and we'll have to pass them off to someone so that they can be fried and eaten. Like, I joke, but things that are created don't satisfy us. But the problem is that we're always looking to our circumstances in order to try to satisfy us. Because folks, here's the truth. Monday's coming. And this quarantine is going to be over. And for some of you, you're going to be sad about that. Because you're introverts and you've kind of enjoyed this life that you've created in which things have slowed down. And for some of you, you can't wait to run to all of your favorite places as they reopen. But no matter how we respond, the truth is our circumstances cannot satisfy us. Jesus is the only one who has the power to make life worth living, to give us hope that's greater than our circumstances. We're going to see that in this story today. So turn with me to John chapter 5 and follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. John writes, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and While I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. There are three sets of characters in this story. The first is Jesus. The second is a man who was most likely a paralytic. He had been an invalid, the scripture tells us, for 38 years, and he was seeking to find his hope in his, phys- in his physical healing. The third set of characters are the Jews, and they were seeking to find their hope in their religious circumstances, in, in living out the law, in believing that if they lived it out in such a way that they would be granted righteousness. Now, as I first read this story, I'm blown away at this man's hope. For 38 years, he has been an invalid, and he is here in Jerusalem by the sheep gate at a pool called Bethesda. Now, imagine with me for a minute. There are five roof colonnades here, and archaeologists have found these pools in this area of Jerusalem. The largest one is about 250 feet wide. So just imagine with me for a moment. You're walking along in this section of Jerusalem. And you see not dozens, but literally hundreds of those who are blind and lame and paralyzed. Imagine the sight. And they are waiting here for what they believe is an opportunity for healing. There is, there is a myth or a story. We don't know much about it. Our best manuscripts don't include uh, these verses. And so you'll see a footnote, most likely, in your text that say that an editor most likely came and added that there was a belief that an angel would come and stir these waters. And it seemed like this belief was strong enough that it had actually taken place. Uh, We have no reason to believe that that angel was from God. Could have been, most likely was not. We just don't know. It could have been demonic. But nonetheless, 
these people are holding out hope that their paralysis could be taken away. Imagine just for a moment this man, 38 years of lying on a mat, 38 years of being completely dependent in every way. Imagine what that must have been like. Oh, I don't want to drink too much. Because if I drink too much, then I'll have to call on someone to come and take me to the restroom. I can do nothing on my own. Imagine what his life must have been like from the moment that he woke up until the watches of the night as he struggled to sleep. He was dependent upon others. But in this moment, imagine the joy that must have entered his life. He has a new identity. He is given freedom. He is no longer dependent upon friends and family. He can now work. He can provide for his own family. He can run. He can play. He could maybe even have kids at this point and have kids that he can play with and a family that, that he could serve. There are endless joys that have entered this man's life because he has met a man that he does not yet know the man's name. Now pick up in verse 9. And you begin to hear the undertones here in, in verse 9. Nine in the second part is the scriptures read now that day was the Sabbath so the Jews said to the man who had been healed it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed but he answered them the man who healed me that man said to me take up your bed and walk they asked him who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a is there was a crowd in the place. The law of this day, at least as the Jews um, had interpreted it and had added to it, that law actually forbid the man from carrying his mat. Um, the Sabbath, if you think back to the Ten Commandments, as God originally gave them, the Sabbath, um, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man in order that we would find rest. And the whole idea of the Sabbath is, is that we would simply rest from our occupation. And so if you're a carpenter, on the Sabbath you don't do carpentry work. Instead, you rest. The Jews had taken the idea of rest and they had created law upon law upon law. So much so that anyone who was carrying a burden could be stoned to death. Now what's a burden? A burden could even be if you had a needle that was threaded in your pocket, they would conclude that you were preparing to do work, that you were preparing to sew. If you had a leg that was amputated, and if you had an artificial leg and you attempted to wear it on the Sabbath, you could be stoned to death. This was the law that the Jews had created. This was their idea of finding life. And even though that might seem so far-fetched to us, it's not that far from the truth because oftentimes we will fall into a pattern of belief or we'll fall into a rut, even in our own thinking, in which we believe that religious acts will somehow bring grace to us from Christ. And that is not the case. This man picks up his mat and he does as Jesus commands him. Now, look at verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The man runs directly to the temple. A lot of theologians have said, well, he's found salvation in Jesus. I don't believe that to be the case. He didn't even know who Jesus was until he saw Jesus in the temple. Think about it for a moment. He's most likely a Jew, and he can now actually enter into the temple. He was not allowed to enter past the court of the Gentiles up until this point because he was a man who was paralyzed. He was lame. He was not seen as someone who was whole. And now he can enter in. He can participate in worship as as everyone else can. And Jesus finds him in that sea of people, in the tens of thousands that would have been there for that festival. Jesus miraculously finds this man. And he says to him, see you are well. He says something very interesting. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The big point that I want you to see here in these first verses is that we're all hoping in something. We're all hoping in something. This man was hoping that his physical circumstances could bring healing to his life and that he could find joy through his physical circumstances. The Jews were believing that if they kept the law, that they could find joy and righteousness through the law, through religion. And the truth of the matter is Jesus is warning this man that he would be careful. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What could be worse than the paralytic state that this man had found himself in over the last 38 years. And the truth of the matter is, what is worse is the sin condition that you and I are born with as we enter this world. That we are all born as spiritual paralytics. That we are men and women who can't find happiness and joy in our circumstances. We can't find life in religion. Our only hope is in Jesus And I want you to see that in verses 17 and 18. The second point that we're going to see is that Jesus is our hope because he is God. Jesus is our hope because he is God. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. Jesus was making a claim that was unbelievable at this time. Now, I want you to stop and and think for just a minute um, about religious conversations that that you have. Uh, You might not realize it, but you have daily conversations with people who are not followers of Jesus, right? Like, you have daily conversations with non-Christians, You might not realize that, but you do. They don't typically reach a point of becoming religious conversations, right? But when they do, think back to the last Jehovah's Witness that knocked on your door and you opened the door mistakenly and engaged with them for a moment. Or or think about a friend who's an agnostic or an atheist who believes in universalism that, that, that all roads lead to one God. In those conversations that you've had in the past... Each of those conversations come down to one person and one question. Right? Every one of those conversations, if you just want to, if you want to fast forward the conversation and get to the part that matters, every conversation comes down to what do you believe about Jesus? That defines everything. 
And in this moment, Jesus is defining more clearly than we've seen who he is defined up until this point in John's gospel. And Jesus is claiming that he is God. He's claiming equality with God. And he's doing that by saying that he has the rights to work on the Sabbath. Think for a moment with me. In the creation story, God rested from his work in creation. We never see in the biblical account that God rested from love. We never see that he rested from showing compassion. We never see that he rested from showing justice or grace. God rested from his work of creation. And Jesus is saying, I am continuing the work of my Father. I have the rights to do that because I am God. Each of us have a decision to make about what we believe about God. And it's the most important question that we will answer in our lives. Because what we believe about Jesus is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, he's either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You have to make your choice. What do you believe about Jesus? And what you believe about Jesus defines everything else in life, because hope is found in Jesus. And Jesus is going to show us in this next set of verses how to actually engage in hope in such a way that we can find hope on a daily basis. And Christians, I want you to really listen to this. So many of us live with a knowledge of hope in our lives. And in the next set of verses, Jesus is going to completely flip the coin on us. He's going to do something that, that would be unbelievable to us if we had just claimed equality with God. And he's going to show us how we can find hope on a daily basis. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus shows us that hope is found through surrender. It's amazing. Jesus has just stated his equality with God. He's just proven it in working on the Sabbath. And now he does the unthinkable. He does what is so countercultural to us. He shares of the way in which he surrenders and submits his life to the Father. And this had been his story throughout all of his life. Paul writes about that in, in Philippians chapter 2 as he gives us a, a summary of Jesus' humility. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 through 8, Paul would say, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Believers, let me ask you, are you submitting your life to Jesus on a daily basis? Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. Is that, is that a typical rhythm for you that you would submit your life to Christ on a daily basis? Jesus seems to show us that his joy is found in submitting himself to the Father. Listen, it's really uncomfortable for us to submit our life to Jesus. Because when we do, when we surrender, we're saying, God, I'm going to give up control of my life and, and I'm going to allow you to be in control. It's not a natural thing for us to do. But I think it requires a daily discipline of us that we would begin each day by saying, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. It's one of the reasons why I love the CBR journal. Um, we've been following along in the Community Bible Reading Journal. And so it's a plan for both reading the Scripture, reading an Old Testament chapter a day, a New Testament chapter a day. We'll get through the whole Bible in three years together as a church family. And in the journal, there are some, there are some questions. And the first question before you even begin to read is, what do I need to surrender through prayer today? What an amazing way to start your day. By daily submitting your life to Christ. And when we do that, look at verse 24. What we see, Jesus teaches us an amazing truth. That when we are reminded that we have submitted our lives to Christ. That we've come under uh, the reality of His truths and His kingdom. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Believers, I want to remind you that Jesus tells us that life doesn't begin with death. That life begins now. And that when we surrender our life to Christ on a daily basis, we're reminded of the life that we have in Christ. As we surrender to Him, we come under His authority. And it's a scary thing. But it's also a very freeing thing. There's probably been a moment that you can remember in your life that was kind of a spiritual marker for you in which you had to make a decision, am I going to submit my life and my agenda to Christ? I can remember my freshman year of college and I was kind of on the fence in terms of following Christ. I was very back and forth and I, and I remember having to make the decision, am I going to follow Christ and pursue what I believe to be an exciting career? Is something that will serve me? That will be, you know... Uh, financially um, sustaining, that will give me a great experience in life? Or am I going to submit my life to Christ? Am I going to follow Him? And that, that decision took me to becoming a religion major and going on to seminary and, and being a part of several church plants. I'm so thankful for that decision. It was very scary at the time, surrendering my life to Christ. But over the years, there's been other spiritual markers along the way that when I do that, I'm reminded that all I have is Christ and that He's in charge. And I don't have to carry the weight and the responsibility and the load of figuring out my life. I just have to surrender to Him one day at a time. And Jesus shows us that there is joy in submitting to Christ. Because when we do, you know, sometimes it, I think it can be really scary to do that. 
But when we submit our life to Christ, even when we make mistakes, guys, it's okay. Because we have an advocate with the Father. And I'm so thankful for that. I'll, I'll never forget um, back when I was in high school, I got a speeding ticket. Uh, actually, not a speeding ticket. I got a ticket for running a red light. And uh, I watched the light the whole way through. Not, I should have gotten a lot of speeding tickets. But this particular ticket, I, the light was yellow the whole time. And I was about 17, and I was feisty. So I went to court to contest it. And I took my little driver's ed manual, and I showed up, and the police officer was there. And I had my case ready, and I read kind of my side of the story, even read out of the driver's ed manual where it says that a yellow light means clear the intersection. The judge didn't think that was very cute. He, he told me he was well aware of the law and that I could put my driver's ed manual up. But what I didn't know, what, as, as the court clerk leaned over and spoke to the judge, what I didn't realize is that the court clerk had been in the post office where my dad worked earlier that week. My dad was a window clerk, lived in a small town, about 17,000 people. And my dad knew a lot of folks. He had a great reputation. And he had mentioned to her that I was going to be coming to court in order to contest this ticket. And she leaned over and she whispered something to the judge. And the judge said, well, son, you've come and you've shared your case. And uh, makes sense. I'm going to throw this ticket out. And I'm going to let you go free on this one. The police officer wasn't very happy. But what I came to find out in that moment is that it pays to have an advocate when you're standing before a judge. And we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus and He stands with us. And He's for us. And listen folks, I want you to hear this. He's for us even when your circumstances of life don't feel very hopeful. Even when it feels as if God is not with you because your circumstances seem to be falling apart... God is with us because we have an advocate in Jesus. He has died on the cross for us. And the hope that we have in Him, I want you to see this in this last point, the hope that we have in Jesus, it leads to life. It leads to life. Look at verse 25 as we wrap up. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son also to have life in Him. And He's given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Pay close attention to verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Hope leads to life. Jesus tells us that there is a future resurrection, not just for believers, but for all. In verse 28, there's a resurrection for all. And a lot of people struggle with this idea that God could be a God of love and a God of justice, that He could be both loving and judging at the same time. I'll remind you that... that John just said earlier in John 3 and verse 17, he said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God. And he writes about 
the modern view of hell and our misunderstandings about the very nature of evil. He goes on to say these words. We think hell works like this. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, He casts our souls into hell for all of eternity. As poor souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy. But God says, too late, you had your chance, now you will suffer. This misunderstands the very nature of evil. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy, of all love, of all wisdom, or good things of any sort. What if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends on into eternity? Hell then represents the trajectory of a soul living in self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. We may see that best in the story of Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. If you don't know it, you should go and read it. The brief summary is this. There's a story of a rich man and a story of a poor beggar named Lazarus. The rich man was dressed elegantly and the poor man named Lazarus begs outside his gate. He longs just to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. The dogs come and lick his sores. It's two contrasting characters. They both die. The rich man is in hell. Lazarus is in heaven. And the rich man still treats Lazarus. Lazarus as a servant. He says, oh, if that poor Lazarus could just come and could just drop a few droplets of water on my tongue. He treats him like a water boy. He treats Lazarus like a messenger. He says, oh, if Lazarus could just go and warn my brothers of this terrible place. He never once asked to be released himself from hell. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. The results of a continual life without God that begins now. C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. There are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God. Or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Hell is a terrible place. But it's a real place. And Jesus reminds us of that. Because Jesus wants us to know that hope is found in him. Because He is God. I want to challenge you. If you're not a Christian, that you would believe on Jesus Christ. The only work that needs to be done for salvation is simply to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says that by believing, you have life in Him beginning today. Christians, I want to remind you, if you surrender to Jesus daily, you will find hope now and in eternity. The challenge that I have for us is this. Over the next five days, I want to challenge you to remind yourself about the hope that you have in Jesus through the daily discipline of surrender. That over the next five days, you would commit, just to try this, to begin your day before you open social media or the news or turn on any type of screen, that you would open up your journal 
and open up your Bible and just begin by answering this simple question. What do I need to surrender through prayer to Jesus today? What do I need to surrender about my job that's maybe opening back up after six weeks? We're going back to work after a quarantine. What do I need to surrender about my finances that just look like they're in turmoil right now? What do I need to surrender about my anxiety or the relationships that either are or are not in my life? Jesus, what do I need to surrender to you? I want to I end with this illustration. As you consider that, believers, I know that I probably haven't shared anything with you today that you don't already know. However, most of us, I am convinced, we live our lives like a family Back in 2014 in France, their family had passed away. The home had been passed from descendant to descendant to descendant. And the last family came in and prepared to sell it. And as they went into the attic, they began to find all these antiques. And they called for an antiques dealer to come out. And he looked at several different things. And they looked at the silver. And they looked at many different things that were there. And there was nothing of great value. And later... They found a mattress against the wall and as they pulled it out, so many things were damaged because of water damage and they found the painting. And they called him and it took many days for him to come. And as he came, he, he took a cotton cloth and, and he wiped away the dirt and all the dust from hundreds of years. And he found a long lost Caravaggio that sold last year for an unknown price. It was estimated it was going to bid somewhere between 125 and 170 million dollars. All along, this family had a treasure under their roof that they ignored. We have a treasure in Jesus. His words are found in the scriptures. We have hope that is found in Him. And we go day after day after day ignoring the treasure, ignoring the hope, and ignoring the life that's found in Jesus. If you surrender to Jesus daily, you will find hope now and in eternity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus' words. Father, thank you for sending your Son who died on the cross, who took the wrath, your wrath, God, your justice that, that we deserved. And Jesus took that justice upon himself in order that we could be called the children of God. Father, may we never seek to seek out hope in, in God. May, may we not seek out hope in our circumstances. God, may we not seek out hope in religion by trying to do good deeds or, or even waking up in the morning to read your word in order that we would think that, that you would bless us more. But God, may we open your word. May we surrender our lives to you daily. May we take up our cross and follow you. Because in following you, we find life. In surrendering to you, we find hope and we walk in joy. God, we come before you just realizing that we can't do this on our own. But you've given us, you've given us an age. You've given us uh, one who would, who would be with us, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, 
who can prompt us, who can give us the power to seek after you and to put our hope, God, not in our circumstances, not in things that will be or could be, not in even good deeds, but God, putting our hope in you, Jesus. May our hope be found in you and in you alone, in your work on the cross, in the Father's work in raising you from the dead, that same power at work in us. God, may we take hold of that power. In Jesus' name we pray.